Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Eric Aspog will join us to discuss when the Earth had two moons. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Formation of the planets in our solar system is really one of cosmological interest, and to discuss this issue is Professor Eric Aspog. Professor Aspog is a professor of planetary science at the University of Arizona and on the faculty of the world-renowned Lunar and Planetary Laboratory in Tucson, winner of the prestigious Harold C. Ray Prize, and he is also part of the team behind NASA's successful Galileo and Elk Cross missions. He has written the new book, When the Earth Had Two Moons, Cannibal Planets, Icy Giants, Dirty Comets, Dreadful Orbits, and the Origins of the Night Sky, and is joining us today to talk about this very fascinating issue. And Professor Aspong, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Oh, great to be here. My pleasure. Certainly a fascinating book you've written here, uh, When the Earth Had Two Moons. I'm curious, why did you decide to write the book? Well, the main reason was trying to communicate what I think is a very breathtaking moment in human history where we now know of thousands of planets. And if you think back just 20 years ago, there were nine planets that we knew of. And so we're in this moment that I think is kind of like almost equivalent to the Copernican revolution in some sense. You don't really know that you're living through this revolution right now because the events are sweeping past us. But I have a feeling that there's an important message to be told by learning more about all these other planets and our place in the universe. So I felt like as a professor who studies these things and studies planet formation, I would be able to put these ideas together in a way that could be understandable by most people because the topics themselves aren't super complicated. And uh, I felt like I had an opportunity to lay out the whole picture of what's going on in science today. Has the discovery, as you mentioned, of other planets around uh, stars broadened our insights into how planets are formed? Absolutely. The first planet ever discovered around a, a normal star turned out to be a hot Jupiter, so a planet that had never been conceived of before, really. Uh, so, the, And these turn out to be quite common. Planets, the mass of Jupiter, giant gas giant planets that are orbiting around their star every four days, just whipping around with a year that's one one hundredth of our year. And they're called hot Jupiters because they're so close in. And then the next planets that were discovered were like Uranus and Neptune, about that kind of mass. And then we found that there's a huge number of planets, prob- probably the dominant kind of planet, which is called super-Earths, which are maybe twice the diameter of the Earth. And so a lot of effort is going into thinking about, could these be habitable? Is it too big to have continents and oceans? And we're just teetering on the brink. If you hang on with this field for about 10 more years, I think we'll get to the point where we'll be discovering the first bona fide Earth-like planets. And that's going to be pretty mind-blowing to start to know about planets that have atmospheres, oceans, continents, like we do. Planetary formation is not uh, unique, as maybe some people might have thought before. It's been quite a ride 
planets were a theoretical entity back in the 90s, and people would talk about, hey, maybe all stars have planets, or maybe something super special happened to our solar system. Uh, This notion of how special an event has to be is always in the back of our minds because we are always wondering, are we unique in the universe as life goes? Because as far as any verifiable, validated evidence goes, we don't have any solid evidence of other life elsewhere in the cosmos. And so maybe life has to be a miracle. But what we're finding out is that planets don't have to be miracles. Uh, There are probably 100,000 or so Earth-like planets in our galaxy alone, based on extrapolating some statistics from what we know so far. There are maybe three or four Earth-like planets that are conceivably within the reach where we could send starships that might end up getting there in uh, dozens of years. So it's really changed hugely to start to look out at the universe and see that a lot of things that people speculated in the past are now fact. And I think that tipping point for speculation to fact is where we're at right now, thinking about where we are in the cosmos. So what about our own solar system, our own planet? How did the Earth come about? Well, we have a very good working theory now of the giant impact. And it seems to be borne out looking at other stars that have planet-forming systems around them. It looks like planets collide with other planets. Half the time, that collision ends up being a merger, and you get a bigger planet. Sometimes that collision makes a satellite, and that's how we think the moon formed. It's about the only theory that works for moon formation is that a planet maybe the size of Mars collided with the Earth shortly after the Earth formed. Well, shortly in geologic terms, maybe 100 million years after the Earth formed, uh, the moon formed. And that was maybe the last of a dozen giant impacts that built the Earth. So kind of like building a mud wall. If anybody's built a cob house or worked with clay, you just glom on bit by bit and you start to build a more massive planet. And the reason that's significant is that if you grew planets molecule by molecule, drop by drop, you might expect them all to end up kind of the same, depending on what part of the solar system they formed in. But if you form planets by giant collision after giant collision, and each of those collisions is two planets that are trying to merge, and they don't always merge, you end up with this pathway for diversity, which is one of the great curiosities in in, in my intellectual domain is why are the planets so diverse? Why is Mars so different from the moon, so different from the Earth, so different from Venus, so different from Mercury? And as we look out at other planetary systems, all of those seem to be unique. What is the source of that uniqueness? And the analogy I like to make is, why aren't planets more like raindrops, all of them about the same? What, what process made them all so different? And I think we've got a bit of a handle on that from this scenario of giant impacts. So is it possible that any type of planet one can imagine through this process of giant impacts could exist, or is there a limit? Well... It's a way of generating every kind of planet you'd need. (laughs) To wax a little bit unscientific and philosophical here, I wonder if the universe has dialed into it a mechanism to make planets as diverse as possible. The the galaxies, you have several different classes of galaxies. The spiral galaxies look kind of like other spiral galaxies. Some of them have had different things happen to them, and there's some unique... Uh, and members stars they tend to follow along the main sequence there's sort of a pattern of of how stars form 
a star that's one solar mass tends, tends to be very similar to the sun. And then you have planets that are all over the map. And I think it has to do with this fight that planets have to win in order to grow. Because when you think about planets emerging out of the disk of smaller bodies orbiting the sun originally, this is the classical idea of planet formation, is smaller bodies merging to become bigger bodies, merging to become even bigger ones. That process, there's something about that process which creates all categories of planets and more kinds of planets that we didn't even know existed now that we've seen them around other stars. And so possibly that's dialed into the fabric of the universe is to make as many possible environments so that a few of them can harbor life. That's waxing a little philosophical there, but I think there is something to it that the scale of planet formation is really essential to amplifying the diversity of everything that's out there. Whether any kind of planet you can imagine exists, that's not quite true because everything has to obey the laws of physics and chemistry. But within those laws, I'd say just about everything can exist, given that we have about a trillion planets that are out there. There are certainly those things that didn't quite make it into planets, that sort of are remnants of planets. So what, what have they told us really again about formation of solar systems? So that's a really interesting question and a very interesting point of science right now, because the Japanese, the United States, the Europeans have all had missions to small bodies, tiny satellites of Mars, the two asteroids, Bennu and Ryugu, that have been visited by the Japanese and by NASA, a comet, uh, Cheryumov-Gerasimenko, that was visited by the Europeans a couple of years ago. We used to view these, and we still to some extent view these as building blocks of the planets. So when you go to an asteroid, you might see something that was unlucky in the sense that it didn't become part of one of these big planets. Or you might regard that as lucky because if it did become part of a planet, it would now be down there in the mantle of of the Earth. So you're looking at a, a building block, but you're also looking at a survivor. And I have this analogy of the book, and the book's full of analogies. I like to uh, uh, connect to people in as many ways as I can. And one of the analogies is the soldiers going off to war. Uh, for example, Napoleon's march on Moscow and coming back to France. And the army left almost a half a million strong, and it came back with 10,000 soldiers at the end. It would be almost like interviewing the 10,000 soldiers who came back, trying to find some sense of who were the initial representative soldiers who headed out Uh, two years earlier. That's not true at all. You're looking at survivors who survived by various different kinds of processes. They were excellent at fighting. They were sneaky and could desert and go off and hide somewhere. They uh, switched uh, uh, uniforms and, uh, you know, tried to get their way out of the battle that way. Planets go through the same kind of process. If they're not being gobbled up by Jupiter or Saturn or the Earth or Venus or some of these large winners that I call them, They're the detritus, but they're also somehow they went through a process of surviving. And so we're not looking at a representative initial population. So we've got to look through the past with a little bit more sophisticated glasses. It's not like you're looking at the bags of cement and the wooden beams and the tiles and the the initial materials you had for building a house. It's more like you're looking through the dumpster after the house has been built and trying to put together the story of how the house was put together. When everyone looks up at the night sky, they see the moon, and the book, of course, is, is titled With the Moon. And What does the moon really tell us about the formation of our planet, and uh, is it one of those survivors, or is it really more of a winner? 
Ah, yeah, that's a great question. The moon, the moon, I guess, would be a little bit of both, survivor and a, and a winner. It, it's in the modern theory, we actually think the moon is a piece of a different planet. We think the moon is mostly a fragment of the planet that collided with the Earth, that ended up with a bunch of debris in orbit around the Earth, and uh, and and the remnants coalesced to form the moon. You lost the core of that initial planet. The iron, all planets, all terrestrial planets have massive iron cores. And one of the mysteries about the moon is it has almost no iron core. And so how do you make a planet orbiting another planet that doesn't have any iron, doesn't have much water? And the giant impact theory is this way of one planet colliding with another, almost merging. So kind of like throwing a pile of clay onto the potter's wheel and it doesn't quite stick, and some of it goes flying off. That's what the moon is in, in the modern theory. The notion of how unique that is to us and what it indicates for how, how planets formed, I think without the moon, we might not have known what we know now, that planets form by giant impacts. It's been the big clue up in the sky all this time that there's a process that winnows material so to speak if, if you imagine all the terrestrial planets forming drop by drop uh, asteroid by asteroid all growing the same you would have planets like mars venus earth everything would be an iron core a rocky mantle and some kind of a crust and maybe an ocean and an atmosphere instead when the process is violent the way the moon has taught us that it is you end up with all kinds of end scenarios so if anything the moon's taught us that the earth formed in violence. The moon has taught us that planets are incredibly diverse through this violent process. And then also the moon is our connection to the universe in many ways, because it was first recognized that the moon orbits the earth. That was kind of a, a, a an obvious uh, uh, recognition by the first astronomers. And then to start to see that the moon is full of craters much later, that, that taught us that the moon's getting hit by asteroids and that the moon is full of volcanic fields. That tells us that other planets can have remnant thermal activities. And so it's been our geological best friend, I'd say. But a real theme of the book is that as we interpret the moon and as we think about the moon as scientists, we have to also recognize what the moon means for us psychologically in terms of all the language that we use. It's embedded in our minds in the same way that the planets are Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. These are all named after planets. And so as we go into the study of planetary science, we have to appreciate that it's really hardwired into our minds what the setting is. Recent discoveries have shown that there are many objects that float in interstellar space. And uh, one such object, the Borisov Comet, what do these interstellar objects tell us about how systems are formed? Until 2015, again, hearkening on this topic that we're living in kind of special times, kind of transformative times, in 2015, we had no knowledge of any interstellar interloper. We, we had every object we'd ever seen in the sky coming uh, that was in our solar system, you know, apart from the stars and the galaxies, every object that we saw in the sky was in our solar system, a comet coming through, you could track its orbit and you could find out that it was on its way out great distances, but it would turn around and come back. It was bound to the sun. And so in 2015, we saw this really bizarre object called Oumuamua, named after the Hawaiian word for scout. And it was discovered 
interestingly, as soon as we switched on these massive telescope arrays, part of the reason why we're living in special times is we have special technology and we have large telescopes just coming online in the last five years or so, whose task is to just look at the sky repeatedly and see if anything's moving. And these are primarily to track hazardous asteroids. They're also to detect exploding stars and what we call transient events. And so as soon as these telescope arrays switched on, we saw the first of these objects, Oumuamua, coming into the inner solar system. And it was a very strange body. It's, uh, Oumuamua is the first interstellar interloper ever discovered. It turned out to be about a pretty small object, less than a kilometer long, shaped like a cigar, very bizarre shape, black like a dark asteroid, uh, tumbling a little bit, zooming into half the distance from Mercury from the sun, so really coming into a sun grazing kind of a encounter. And it was uh, and it had no uh, no um uh outgassing. What what astronomers look for when they see any comet or any objects coming into the solar system for the first time is they look for gases coming off of it because it's going to get heated up by the sun. So here's this object. It's been in interstellar space for at least 300,000 years. That, that's the distance it would have taken to come from the nearest star in the direction it came from at the velocity it was coming in from. And the expectation is that this thing in the deep, dark, coldest space would start to vaporize, lose some of its ices, and, its and, and you detect these gases. There was nothing. It, it was undetectable as a, a cometary object. So it looked like a dead dormant asteroid that came in from another solar system, zoomed right close to the sun, and had a tumbling motion. And that led a lot of people to think about possibly non-natural origin, namely piece of a alien spacecraft or, or a a stealth spacecraft coming to inspect the earth that they wanted to dis disguise it to look like an asteroid. These aren't crazy thoughts. These are thoughts that were kind of in the scientific mainstream. And we started to forget about Oumuamua a little bit, except for the fact that a year went by more than a year and we didn't see another one. And we started thinking we ought to be seeing more of them. If we saw this one just as soon as the telescopes switched on, we should be seeing about one a year. Now, the next one of these interstellar objects is Comet Borisov, and I call it a comet because it looks like a comet. If you didn't know anything about its orbit and you just saw it in the sky, you'd think it was any other comet. It's uh, uh, about a mile, maybe two miles diameter, ball of icy materials. We know it's icy because it's off-gassing like mad. It has a big tail, water, oxygen, hydrogen cyanide, uh, carbon monoxide, all the things that come off of comets in the form of ices we see coming off of Borisov. But we know it came from interstellar space as well because it's not bound to the sun. It's coming in at about 32 kilometers per second faster than the escape velocity of the solar system. The sun can't hang on to it. It's, and what's great about Borisov isn't that it's maybe aliens, because there's nothing artificial about it. It looks like a very natural object. But it's outgassing so much that we can measure the composition. And so for the first time ever, we're getting compositional measurements of another star system, another planet-forming system. Well, we're running slightly out of time. I'm just curious, uh, maybe the, the frontiers and the future uh, issues for planetary science. I mean, I wrote this book to try to be accessible 
to non-scientists. That's not to say that it's not scientific. And so I do get into some of the details, how planets form to the best of our knowledge and what kind of planets are out there to the best of our knowledge and where life might be able to flourish to the best of our knowledge. Uh, it's not meant to be an easy read. It's, you know, parts of it are easy to read, but parts of it are a little bit detailed because the story is interesting when it's more detailed, like a good mystery novel. If you have the mystery be too easy, it's not a very enjoyable read. There's a deep mystery here that I don't know the answer to. Nobody knows the answer to, but we're on the verge of making huge strides. Gigantic telescopes in space, the James Webb Space Telescope that'll be launched in 2021 is a supercooled cryogenic detector it's going to stare at the planets that we've discovered so far, the ones that look the most possibly habitable, and start to, it's hard to imagine, but in about 10 years or less, maybe five years, we'll start to see ice caps forming and retreating on other planets. We won't see it as pictures. It'll just be data that we infer from measurements of composition. But we're going to start to see details on the surfaces of planets. And it feels to me, I'm not saying that it is, but it feels to me a lot like the 1990s when astronomers didn't really dare to speculate whether or not there would be planets. We didn't know. And so everyone hedged their bets. Uh, scientists don't really bet as much as they explore and assess the data. And so nobody was laying their career on the line saying they were, there were guaranteed to be planets out there. I think the same might be true for starting to see evidence for life in the universe. Uh, this, if it happens in the next 10 years, in hindsight, it would be obvious. Like, of course, there's life out there. There's a billion trillion planets out there and, uh, and, and a billion of them that are probably very similar to the Earth. So uh, how could people be so stupid to be thinking that maybe there's not life everywhere? I don't know what the future has in store, but it feels like we're on this tipping point where we're going to discover amazing new things. And then at the same time, we're boxed into a corner. The analogy I use in the book is that we've uh, painted ourselves into a corner, yet we're lost. We're lost because the universe has suddenly become so gigantic in terms of the potential for life and the potential for, uh, for us to move out into a, a, a universe full of planets. And then at the same time, we're in dire straits here at home on our own planet. And so the technologies that enable discovery and the technologies that we're wrestling with and trying to understand what they are doing to the planet here at home, these have to be reconciled. And I feel like one of the great things that could happen as we move forward is a recognition uh, a, a global recognition of where we are in the universe. And that might help us uh, set us on, on a proper human path. We were just talking with Professor Eric Aspog. He's the author of the new book, When the Earth Had Two Moons, Cannibal Planets, Icy Giants, Dirty Comets, Dreadful Orbits, and the Origins of the Night Sky. Professor Aspog, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.